This episode is sponsored by Stanford University's Strategies for Sustainability Professional Education Program. Explore the frameworks and tools needed to promote sustainability in your organization. Courses online and in person. Visit globalimpact.stanford.edu. From Green Biz Group, welcome to this week's edition of 350. I'm Joel McCower here at Green Biz headquarters at 350 Frank Ogawa Plaza in downtown Oakland, California. On this week's edition, a conversation with Dame Ellen MacArthur, how Best Buy and Danone are thinking about circularity, why 2019 is the year of stakeholder trust, and two Green Biz staffers go bicycling on the bay. We're walking on water this week on 350. It's May 3rd, 2019. Happy May and welcome to this week's edition of Green Biz 350. Joining me from across the table is Green Biz Editorial Director Heather Clancy here in Green Biz Studio. Hey, Heather. Greetings, Joel. It's been so much fun having you here this week. We had a quite the week. Uh, Monday and Tuesday, we had a leadership offsite of the leadership team, which includes you and me and eight others of our colleagues, which was pretty interesting. And all hands meeting on Wednesday. Yesterday we were some, did some back breaking or at least arm hurting work at the City Slicker Farms. Nail breaking, yes. And I want to give a shout out to Rodney Spencer and the team over there at City Slicker Farms uh, in West Oakland, just uh, about a mile and a half from the Green Biz office. They're a uh, nonprofit uh, community garden and uh, also a uh, education, farming, and recreation area right here in uh, uh, in West Oakland. As I said, very close to where we are. And um, I love, I just want to give their pitch uh, at City Slicker Farms. They believe that healthy and affordable food is a universal human right. And they demonstrate this work daily with individuals, groups, and other like-minded organizations to develop and support high-yield urban farms and community gardens. And it was really fun, as it always is, to get the 30 of us together with gloves and rakes and hoes and pickaxes and shovels and all the rest and, you know, see what happens. I, par- I packed my gardening hat and boots just for this occasion. It was really thrilling for me to be here. It was really great to have the opportunity to do this with the team. It's a um, very enriching way to spend with, with your colleagues and friends. And fun, too. And did I mention the arm hurting and <laughs> <laughs> blister-inducing? Anyway, we, uh, we'll, we'll heal over the next week or so, but let's talk about the Week in Review. I'll start us off this week, Joel, with a piece from our one of our friends at BSR, Allison Taylor. She is the managing director there, and each spring they they uh, queue up a series of stories. I mean, we we, we pick up their uh, columns and so forth at other times of the year, but each year they give us a series um, of of pieces that they're thinking about. And this week we started off a series of articles on stakeholder engagement and um, trust. And actually, this was a word that came up at our offsite 
quite a bit this week. And how do you um, trust the flow of information back and forth between a company and all of the various stakeholders, including employees and investors and customers and, of course, business partners? Um, so uh, just a, a wonderful piece on why it's not enough to be sending one-way messages and why you need to be authentic. I mean, it's nothing that you have not heard before. Um, all of us have heard this, um, and then it's become much more um, important to have a two-way dialogue and to be available for questions and to be visible um, in, many in many different ways that, that companies have not been in, in the past. Um, and it's not so much whether or not you can trust your stakeholders and, and to trust them and share that information with them. It's more, do they trust you and what will build that trust? So Allison is a great essay on this. They've, they're uh, refreshing some research and um, she wrote about that this week and, and it starts off this sort, sort of a series of articles on this, on this concept. Yeah, companies talk about transparency and certainly uh, employees and, and other stakeholders, activist groups and community groups press companies to be transparent. But what does that mean about transparency? And you can, you know, putting stuff out there, is it believable? Is it accessible? Uh, what form is it in? And, um, and do you trust uh, the, not just the, what you're putting out there, but trust the, that the audience is going to take it in the right kind of way. So it is a transparency is not a one-way street. I think that's one of, the, one of the points here. The other point is who's talking. And um, she gives a great example, of course, of Black, BlackRock CEO uh, Larry Fink and um, the person who's sharing your message. If it's not the CEO, why is that? And I think that more and more that that's a cause of suspicion um, for your stakeholders if that person that's upholding that, that big corporate mandate or that big corporate ideal isn't your CEO. Why isn't it the CEO? It should be the CEO plus everyone in the C-suite. So that also resonated for me. Yeah, I just add one more layer to that, Heather. There, it's it's not just who's talking, but what's the voice? Is it you know? Does it feel like corporate speak? Does it feel mm -hmm. like the kind of way that you would normally hear a company talking? Because sometimes you know companies sort of develop a voice in the marketplace, and and when then they come out with some sustainability or other you know corporate responsibility or something where they're trying to be transparent, and it doesn't sound like them. And it's not believable. And so that there, you mentioned that word earlier, authenticity on top of transparency is it, it all fits together. And speaking of authenticity and who's delivering the message, we had a great conversation this week between Lauren Phipps, our director and senior analyst on circular economy, and Dame Ellen MacArthur, the founder of the Ellen MacArthur Foundation uh, and really the uh, maven, I call her a grand dame on Twitter, of, uh, of circular economy. Uh, and of course, uh, her, she and her organization are one of our partners uh, for the Circularity 19 conference coming up in June in Minneapolis. And as part of that, as one of the key players and advisors, uh, Lauren has been doing a series of interviews with people uh, who fit in that category. And there's nobody who fits in that category more than Ellen MacArthur. So um, a really interesting conversation, sort of looking at, you know, where what she's seeing now. I mean, she's been in this for almost 10 years, uh, the circular economy, when she started talking about that. And what is she seeing now and, and, and what's different and, and, and maybe sort of what's missing on here? Uh, really pretty interesting. 
and for me, the one of the big takeaways from the, from the interview was this sort of need to keep a more open mind about closed loop uh, models and to get away from the linear thinking. That's really you know that's that she mentioned that as one of the biggest obstacles in, in the work that she's doing, and that really struck me because I had this great conversation with the uh, vice president of sustainability at Dell. Um, David Lear, and we were talking about exactly that. When you're when you're developing a closed loop for the, a circular product, it might not be that the inputs might not be from your loop; they might be from another loop. So you need to be thinking about open loops in order to get to to a more closed loop economy. And I just for that for me that whole concept of being creative and and really thinking out of the box literally is so important and it's just refreshing. I love her focus on optimism and positivity too because there's so much negativity in so much of the business world reporting now and to to hear this refreshing voice and 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 talking about the possibilities is just ah it's a it's a pick me up. Well, that's a great segue to a piece that I did this week that uh, has been getting uh, some pretty good action on social media about, it's called the righteousness of the youth-led climate justice movement. And it really gets to the point that there is this, two things going on. One is this this youth movement that's about time. I've been waiting to see this happen for a long time. I wondered why the young people today, and I hate to sound old, but I am, uh, you know, aren't more up in arms about uh, their elders, all of us, uh, kind of stealing their future by not taking sufficient action on climate change. And at the same time, this shift from dealing with climate change to dealing with climate justice, which sounds, uh, I don't know what it sounds like to most people, but it, it, it does. it's a little bit of a head scratcher until you start to understand uh, the reasoning and what's behind it around how climate is really connected to a, a whole range of, of other issues, uh, both environmental issues, um, you know, water, clean water and clean air and, and trash and toxic facilities in your neighborhoods, and a lot of social issues around uh, education and empowerment of young girls and women, the living wage, food insecurity, health care, and on and on and on, and how those are all of a piece. And that's where this movement's going. And um, you know, there's there's a number of different organizations, the Sunrise Movement, the Extinction Rebellion, there's the Youth Climate Strikes, and even the Green New Deal. And I have to say, it's pretty refreshing and, and uplifting. It is uplifting. Uh, it, it just is a totally um, a non sequitur, if, if you will. I was interviewing one of our 30 Under 30 um, the new list is coming out June 3rd, everyone. I'm not going to tell you who it was, but uh, this particular individual is in Japan doing his work. And uh, I asked him about the youth movement there, and he said that it was starting to pick up in the in universities. And in Japan, the education system makes it a little bit more difficult to have the sort of passion around this issue. Um, they're taught not to be questioning at that time. But he said that even in his country, um, his, the country of his, his home, if not birth, uh, they are beginning to wake up at the university level. The other thing that I'll point out is many of the things that you just brought up are very core to the, the sustainable development goals. And that's mm-hmm. where the link comes back to the corporate world is, okay, now this stakeholder, this young, this young person, this, this, this person that's concerned with, what, with how what we do next will affect not just the climate but also the community, the social sphere, and, and, and address some of these sort of systemic issues that we have about this power plant is in a, in a low-income low neighborhood and therefore they're suffering more asthma rates. I mean, that whole, that whole 
meme, if you will. Um, I love that that pointing back to the sustainable development goals because that's now, okay, now connecting the dots, you in the corporate world can take that as a stakeholder input, if you will, and start maybe getting more buy-in at the executive level for where you need to go with linking your sustainability strategy to the SDGs. So I, it's a full circle thing. Yeah, and it's interesting too that it's not just uh, the SDGs are often perceived as a uh, poor country, rich country mm-hmm. uh, kind of thing. And that's part of it because there's definitely some studies that show that you know, without climate change, uh, India would be richer and Norway would be poorer. Um, uh, and sort of the dis- disparity that's being caused or er- exacerbated by the climate crisis. But also even within the United States, there was a study in 2017 that said that climate change is going to aggravate economic inequality within the United States by transferring wealth from communities in the Southeast and Midwest to more prosperous ones in the Northeast and the coasts. And of course, if you're not colorblind, you already know that those are red states versus blue states kind of thing. And so that that's going to uh, be interesting to see as the blue states, in, in effect, take more of the wealth from the red states and how climate plays into that. Will that ever in political circles uh, actually be identified and named or will that always be blamed on somebody else? And of course that depends on who's leading the country. Let's not go much deeper into that. This episode is sponsored by Stanford University's Strategies for Sustainability Professional Education Program. Help your organization move sustainability from the margins to the core of its mission. Courses online and in person, visit globalimpact.stanford.edu. On Wednesday this week, we hosted a webcast on the circular economy, the state of the market, a really interesting conversation hosted by my colleague Lauren Phipps with Asha Masukdev from the Ellen MacArthur Foundation, Alexis Ludwig-Vogan from Best Buy, and Marin Doles from Danone North America. Uh, here's Lauren to talk a little bit about it. Lauren, first of all, what was the conversation about or why did we need a conversation on the state of the market? Thanks, Joel. So, you know, we talk a lot about the circular economy opportunity. I hear the stat by Accenture, it's a $4.5 trillion economic opportunity quite a bit, but it's less often that we actually go into what that looks like in practice and how do you access that opportunity. And I think really what the conversation around the circular economy needs is proof points. We need to sort of demonstrate what's possible and ground something that is largely theoretical and aspirational in the practice, in what it takes to bring that to life. So that's sort of what the conversation focused on. So you've been uh, knee or hip or neck deep in this for a while as the as our analyst on circular economy and the chair of the both Verge Circular and the Circularity of uh, 19 event we have coming up in June in Minnesota. So what did you learn? What were some of the things that were interesting or surprising to you? Well, the first thing that I was excited to hear about from Ashima was around the role of circularity in the climate discussion. Uh, She cited that 67% of global GHG emissions are related to materials management. And I personally haven't seen as much of that dialogue around climate and circularity and those dots being connected. So that was super exciting for me to hear about. Um, another another piece that I was really interested in is hearing from Best Buy. You know, they've been doing take back for a really long time. Alexa said that Geek Squad repairs five million products every year. And it was great to hear a bit about some of the details on why they do that and how they make the economics pencil out. 
So let's play a couple of clips. Uh, here's one from Alexis Ludwig Vogen, who's the Director of Environmental Sustainability and Compliance at Best Buy. From an environmental perspective, there's just a lot that goes into making technology products. You've got the mining, the manufacturing, the assembly, the packaging, the shipping. Uh, and for that product and all the resources in that product to sit idle because it's either in disrepair or it's not meeting needs anymore or it's just simply at its end of life, it's really doing a disservice to everything that went into building that product. So we've built out a number of different programs that are really about maximizing the usefulness of these electronics. So of course, um, we want to help our customers live more sustainably and to be able to purchase more sustainable products. We have a large assortment of Energy Star products, and since 2009, um, we have helped our customers save more than $700 million in utility funds. We also have our Geek Squad repair business, um, which, of course, I, that keeps products in the use phase. We then have a comprehensive trade-in program where customers can bring in a product, and we will give you a gift card for that product. So the customer gets money, and then we always make sure that that product has a useful second life. We also offer one of the largest voluntary retail recycling programs in the country. We will responsibly recycle your products no matter where you bought them. Um, our, we have a goal to collect 2 billion pounds for recycling, and that's since 2009 when we launched the, pro the program. 2 billion pounds by the end of 2020, and we are nearly there. And I have to say that um, while we have this recycling program, when a product comes in to the program, the first thing that we try to do is refurbish and resell that product. So we're always trying to work and get it back up to the highest use possible. If we can't refurbish it, if we can't resell it, we will look to see if we can take parts from the product, and then eventually it will go through our recycling part, uh, process. Now here's Marin Doles, the Senior Director of Research and Development at Danone North America. Interestingly enough, when it comes to the circular economy, food is lagging which I personally find astonishing. I mean, what is more existential than food? The one product that we actually ingest. And furthermore, if we look at the examples that are being typically quoted when we talk about circularity in food, they're mostly focused on redirecting or converting waste streams into new products. These are great steps. They are desperately needed. Don't get me wrong, but are they truly circular? Do they really resolve the underlying systemic issue? Or are we optimizing within the current system and just reducing the harm, or as McDonough and Browngard call it, applying eco-efficiency? I believe that we have to go back to the drawing board. I believe that we have to move away from eco-efficiency and actually move towards eco-effectiveness to a food system that does good rather than reducing the harm, and that has a positive social, ecological, and economical impact. A regenerative food system by design, which is my simplest definition of what circular food is. But that might feel overwhelming. We might feel that we're locked into the current system. If that's the case, let's just remember 
that the most eloquent and elegant regenerative system, nature, actually has 3.8 billion years of successful track record. Before we let you go, we've got one more webcast on the topic coming up on May 21st. It's called Circular Packaging, the State of Play, which I will be hosting, and uh, three more interesting guests. But in the meantime, if you want to go back and hear the replay of this week's webcast, Circular Economy, State of the Market, you can go to uh, greenbiz.com, go down to the bottom, and you'll see a link to webcast, and you'll find it there. You just have to register, and it's free. Thanks, Lauren. Thanks, Joel. Hi, this is Katie Fehrenbacher, senior writer covering transportation for GreenBiz, and this week a group of us at GreenBiz got to experience something pretty cool. We took a couple of water bikes out for a spin. Yeah, you heard me right, a water bike. These are bikes that ride on top of the water and have a battery that assists the pedaling. They're made by a startup based in the Bay Area called Schiller Bikes. It was founded by longtime communication executive Jessica Schiller. Schiller started her business several years ago, making these unique bikes and selling them to, well, basically rich people. But this year, with the rise of the whole micro-mobility movement, you know, all the shared scooters and docked bikes popping up in cities around the world, she decided to start focusing on how her water bikes could actually be a shared micro-mobility solution. If you have a docked bike station in your community, it would be a bit like that, but of course would work across a waterway. You pay a couple of bucks, unlock the water bike, and commute along the canal, across the lake, or even over the San Francisco Bay. Here's her vision. Yeah, so when you look at the largest and most congested cities around the world, the vast majority of them have waterways that either run through the heart of them or around them. So think about San Francisco, Boston, Chicago, Copenhagen, London, Tokyo, all around the world. It's a very long list. And yet they're like empty highways. So we're all trying to compete for space on asphalt within the confines of an urban area. But right over there is a body of water that we can use for really peaceful, joyful, uh, and safe mobility. And also, they're just super fun to ride. I got a chance, along with my colleague Sarah Golden, our senior energy analyst, and our conference manager, Sydney Massing-Schaefer, to try out these water bikes in the canal between Oakland and Alameda, just a few blocks from the GreenBiz headquarters. Schiller Bikes is planning to build the world's first docked water bike stations there, hoping to move commuters in the mornings and early evenings across the Oakland estuary, while also offering a fun time for tourists and water lovers during the day. Jessa explained what that Alameda and Oakland commute might look like. What normally could take 30 minutes, 40 minutes um, trying to commute into this into Oakland can now take about 90 seconds biking across the estuary. And again, I think this is probably going to be the sort of the best commute of your life. Every ride feels like a vacation. You're on the water. Um, so it's just really exciting. And we're looking forward to doing it this summer. It's Jessica's company. So, of course, you know, she's going to make water bike riding sound pretty amazing. But I can also attest that it was addictive. Here's what Sydney and Sarah had to say as well. It was a ton of fun. I really enjoyed riding it. It had a weird sort of um, uh, mechanics that you have to get used to because it doesn't steer like a regular bike. But it's something that I certainly would want to do again on another sunny day when I have more time. It was so fun. I feel super relaxed and energized. Um, They go really fast, surprisingly, and you can basically wear I'm wearing, you know, work clothes right now and I didn't get a speck of water on me, so it's very realistic and I would do this every day if I could.
And that's our 350 podcast for this week. You can go to greenbiz.com slash 350 and you'll find more about the organization's stories and events we mentioned in this episode. While you're over there, check out the link to our other podcast, Center Stage, the best of live interviews from GreenBiz events. Our email is 350 at greenbiz.com. And don't forget to subscribe to one or more of our five weekly e-newsletters. Heather's Verge Weekly comes out on Wednesdays, and my Green Buzz newsletter is fresh every Monday morning. And check out the other three, too, on transportation and mobility, clean energy, and the circular economy. Heather and I will be back next week as usual. Until next time, from all of us here at Green Biz Group, I'm Joel McCower. Thanks so much for tuning in. This episode is sponsored by Stanford University's Strategies for Sustainability Professional Education Program. Explore the frameworks and tools needed to promote sustainability in your organization. Courses online and in person. Visit globalimpact.stanford.edu. Global